Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 93. Christianity and Rome, the first 300 years. The Roman province of Judea was the home of the Jews. This ancient religion had been around for many years before the Romans annexed their homeland and the conquering rulers tolerated Jewish worship, as long as it didn't impinge on the efficient running of the empire. For most of their parallel existence, the Romans and Jews coexisted peacefully. Vespasian and Titus had to put down a serious revolt in the 1st century AD, and Hadrian's heavy-handed approach caused major problems in the 2nd century, but Judaism flourished. It didn't expand and take over, it barely registered on the consciousness of most of the emperors. Christianity was different. If the histories are to be believed, Jesus was born in Judea sometime around the year zero. This isn't surprising, given that the year zero is defined as the year of the birth of Jesus. It's not within the scope of this story to debate the existence or non-existence of Jesus. We know that Romans occupied Judea in 63 BC, and we know that a King Herod was appointed by Mark Antony to rule over the territory between 37 and 4. There is some evidence that Jesus was born during Herod's reign, and he died on the cross during the Imperium of Tiberius. From this death sprung a brand new religion. At the time, though, there was no intention to create something new. The early Christians were simply Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Sects proclaiming this to be true sprung up in Alexandria, Damascus and Antioch, and in Corinth, and eventually Rome. Most Jews, though, did not consider Jesus to be the Son of God. In the early days of Christianity, followers of this new direction all came from the Jewish tradition. They strictly adhered to Jewish laws and rigidly stuck to the dietary requirements and other tenets of the faith. Non-Jews were not welcome. All this changed, though, through the teachings of St Paul. The effect he had on the new religion and on the subsequent world events cannot be underestimated. It's not for nothing that he is known as the second founder of Christianity. Saul, as Paul was originally known, was born in Tarsus, a city in Asia Minor. He was a Jewish leader, a Pharisee, and initially took to persecuting the new religion. Legend has it he was on the road to Damascus one day when he was struck blind. While being unable to see, he heard a voice, the voice of Jesus. I am Jesus of Nazareth, why do you persecute me? Saul was apparently terrified but inspired all at once. He asked what he should do and was told to continue to Damascus and preach the word of God, the Christian God. And this he proceeded to do, with the utmost zeal. In the following thirty years, Paul travelled all over the Greek and Roman worlds, converting to the new sect. And all is important. Christianity was no longer reserved for the Jews. Paul converted anyone and everyone. Slaves, Romans, visiting merchants, anyone who was prepared to listen to the word could become a Christian. He wrote letters to the citizens of many Roman cities and towns, advising them on their duties to God and to Jesus. A number of these letters form part of the New Testament of the Christian Bible. And thus, Paul probably played the greatest role in the spread of Christianity. By the time he was beheaded in Rome in 65 AD, approximately, during the reign of Nero, he'd spread the word and spread it wide. All of the important cities in the Eastern Empire, as well as many in Greece and of course Rome itself, had Christian communities. Paul's letters served as an authority, standardising the belief system. The church at Rome was said to have been founded by St Peter, Jesus' favourite disciple. He was also executed during the reign of Nero.
There is no evidence that Christianity took the Roman Empire by storm. The Roman government, during its glory years, generally tolerated religious belief that did not directly threaten it. In its early years, Christianity was clearly no threat to Rome or whatsoever. A few of its more vocal leaders, such as Paul and Peter, were executed, but there was no real targeting of the run-of-the-mill Christian. There is little allusion to them in Roman documents of the time. Pliny the Younger, in the late 1st century, is the first to mention them as a distinct and noteworthy group. Conflict between Christianity and the Roman authorities first manifested itself in the refusal of the followers of Jesus to make offerings to the Roman gods. Jews were officially exempt from this practice, as were a few other small sects like the Zoroastrians. These small religions were geographically contained. They could be managed. Christians, on the other hand, were spread throughout the empire. Their refusal was more threatening. The Romans believed that these naysayers posed a danger to them, If the Christians refused to offer to the gods, then the divine beings would be angered. Angry gods spelled disaster. They put in jeopardy the Pax Deorum, the peace or agreement with the gods. The gods thought the Romans protected cities and towns and people in exchange for sacrifice and worship. If some of the population refused to worship, perhaps the gods would be forced to exact revenge. The Christians also refused to worship the emperors. By the late 2nd century, many dead emperors had been declared to be gods, and there was some debate about whether the living emperor was also divine. To Christians, emperors were just men. Very important men, but just men. Christian doctrine is based on something else entirely. It's founded on the self-sacrifice of one being in order to save everyone else. This made Christians tolerant of persecution. If they were being targeted by the authorities, then somehow they were continuing the work of their master. This is one reason why the persecution of the Christians is important to modern Christianity. There are famously supposed to be ten persecutions, probably ten in order to keep it neat and tidy like the Ten Commandments. In truth though, systematic persecution of Christianity probably only happened twice. There were pockets of it at other times, but no empire-wide edict. During the first two centuries, persecution was sporadic and untargeted. In the third century, though, it became a little more serious. We will take a look at the realities of these persecutions later in this chapter. The way the Christian church was organised, or in its early phases not organised, helped it to survive and grow. Christianity taught that a loving God had sent his Son in order to atone for human sins. He had been born again, cleansed of sin. The converts to this new religion took their obligations seriously. Everyone was equal. Caring for orphans and other unfortunates was a duty, and they carried it out with care. The view was widely held in the early Christian church that the second coming of their Lord was imminent. This meant they would all be judged pretty soon, and so what was the point of organising their church? As it became clearer the second coming was going to be, at least delayed, a somewhat more defined organisation emerged. The key officials of the church were known as bishops. Each bishop looked after a specific region, and the churches that were situated in that region had priests who were responsible directly to the bishops. The bishop was responsible only to God, and was seen as the direct successor of the apostles. Four cities emerged as having leading bishops. Over time, Rome, Antioch, Alexandria and Jerusalem became the primary centres of the religion. By the 4th century, a fifth had emerged but more of that in the next chapter.
the doctrine of Christianity also emerged over time. The first doctrine emerged with St Paul. This was that Jesus was divine and thus explained that his death was actually just a death on earth and was an atonement for the sins of mankind. However, men have a habit of disagreeing over these things. In the late 200s, a priest from Alexandria named Arius created one of the first divisions in Christian thought. He disputed the simple divinity of Jesus. Christ, said Arius, was not fully God because he was not of the same substance as God. He was a created being and so could not be as important as God himself. This dispute became extremely serious and could not be sorted out easily, as the Emperor Constantine found out. And this may have been the first great dispute, but it wasn't the last. So, back to the persecutions. Remember, Christians like things that come in tens, but many of these persecutions seem to be somewhat exaggerated. Nero is reported to be the first emperor of Rome to persecute this new sect. There is little evidence of true anti-Christian policies. There's some indication of anti-Christian activity, and of course the emperor is said to have blamed them for the great fire of Rome. The second of the persecutions is traditionally under Domitian. We must remember though that poor old Domitian was blamed for pretty much everything, despite being a competent ruler. Many historians have come to the conclusion there was little or no persecution at all at this time. Certainly Domitian had little or no reason to promote anti-Christian thought. He wanted sound government, and Christians were no threat to this. Christianity was generally tolerated during the reigns of the five good emperors. Trajan and Hadrian both stated that Christians were not to be sought out and punished. Trajan's communications with Pliny demonstrate this. Hadrian went even further, stating that just being a Christian was not enough to bring a punishment. They would have to have committed an illegal act. He also made it a crime to bring an action against a Christian without foundation. Ascribing persecutions to either of these emperors is laughable. There was again some anti-Christian activity during the reigns of Marcus Aurelius, Septimius Severus and Maximinus Thrax, but again it's difficult to lay the brain at the door of the actual emperor. The fact that Marcus and Severus are held up as persecutors probably rests on the lengths of their reigns. Both were around long enough to have been in power during some noted anti-Christian actions. Pinning the blame on them personally is somewhat difficult. Real targeted persecution of Christianity as a religion really didn't start until the reign of Decius. During his brief tenure as emperor, he decided that part of the problem for the empire during its crisis period was the decline in the moral standing of the people, and in particular, failure to worship the gods properly. Decius was determined to put an end to this. Anyone who didn't pay the gods their due respect was going to suffer. He made an exception for the Jews. Their religion was ancient and had rarely caused any problems. The Romans respected the age and history of Judaism and allowed Jews to continue to practice their very un-Roman religion without any interference. This persecution of the Christians, then, was not actually targeted at the Christians. Everyone, except Jews, who failed to adequately worship the gods, was at risk. The emperor issued an edict ordering every non-Jewish resident of the empire to perform a sacrifice to the gods. This sacrifice had to be witnessed by a Roman official, who then issued a signed certificate called a libellus. This was the first time non-Roman religions had been required to choose between staying faithful to their beliefs and staying alive, since failure to carry out the terms of the edict was punishable by execution. Many high-ranking Christian officials died as a result of their refusal, including Pope Fabian. It's not known exactly how many people died as a result of this edict, or how many apostatized, 
gave up their Christian beliefs in order to save their lives. This was the first time the Christian religion had been really damaged by the Roman state. And there was an unexpected and lasting legacy. When the terms of the edict were over, after less than two years, many Christians who had apostatized wanted to return to the fold. Generally they were accepted, but a significant minority of those who had refused the edict and survived refused to believe that those who had renounced should be welcomed back. A group known as the Donatists broke away from the main church and was still causing trouble nearly 150 years later. This is another example of the tendency of the Christian church to schism over doctrine and policy disputes. The Emperor Valerian, a couple of years after Decius had died at Abritus, issued a decree along similar lines with a more detailed list of punishments. Interestingly, his letter to the Senate describing his wishes described what would happen to Roman officials who were Christian. They would be reduced to slavery. This demonstrates that the Decian persecution must have been quite unsuccessful. Only a few years later, Christians were at the centre of Roman bureaucracy once more. Another pope, Sixtus II, was executed under this new persecution, as was Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage. Valerian's son Gallienus, a cultured and right-thinking man, revoked the legislation in 260, and thus the second-to-last persecution of Christianity came to an abrupt end. Gallienus's successors had no beef with Christianity at all. Aurelian, with his veneration of the unconquered son, even moved towards monotheism, the worship of one god. Although this wasn't a direct endorsement of Christianity, his views meant that toleration was almost implicit. The greatest persecution of the Christians came under one of Rome's greatest emperors. Diocletian got most things right when he completely reorganised the empire. One thing he got spectacularly wrong, though, was his clampdown on non-Roman religious activity. Once again, the great persecution was not initially aimed at Christians. It was targeted on all non-Roman religions. One of Diocletian's Caesars, Galerius, was though very anti-Christian, and he urged his senior emperor to begin a general and thorough persecution. Diocletian was a little wary, but he consulted the oracle and was given the green light. Once again, there are no really concrete estimates of the number of Christians who were martyred during the Great Persecution. The actual edict took a similar form to Decius's one. Inhabitants were forced to sacrifice to the Roman gods. Failure to comply resulted in execution. Property was confiscated, some people apostatized, others accepted their fate and refused. Even Diocletian's great skills in organisation could not enforce the persecution perfectly. Galerius was very keen and implemented the policy in his territories with zeal. Constantius was far less keen and Christians in his lands escaped much of the terror. Maxentius, when he usurped the Italian peninsula, declared general religious toleration. Even Galerius, once he became ill, ended the persecution in the east. The last of the Tetrarchic emperors to enforce the persecution was Maximine Dyer. He was ousted by Licinius. Constantine had taken over completely in the west. These two signed the famous Edict of Milan in 313, and the persecution was over. Constantine didn't actually convert to Christianity officially until he was on his deathbed, and he certainly didn't make Christianity the official religion of the empire. Every emperor after him, with one brief exception though, was a practising Christian. By the end of the 4th century, Christianity was the official religion after the last of the great Western emperors, Theodosius, implemented this historic change. 
Christianity survived the persecutions and rose to be the dominant religion in the Western world. There is one small example which ironically shows its strength, even under duress. Diocletian, organiser of the last persecution, also reorganised his empire. He created regions called dioceses, named after him, and appointed men with the title of vicar to administer them. These terms still survive today, but not as political ones. A diocese is the area under the supervision of a bishop in the Christian church. Vicar is a term for a priest in some denominations. Diocletian, who wanted to eradicate Christianity, now has part of Christian administration named after him. Next time, we'll return to our story of the empire and see how Constantine goes about ruling on his own. So, until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.